0: If you would please turn to John chapter 16, John chapter 16, <clears throat> begin reading in John chapter 16 and verse 5, we're just moving our way through this book of John, and there's so many precious truths in it, we just want to, we want to milk it for all that's there, everything that is said is there for a purpose, every word, every thought and so we we do not want to go- neglect God's word at all and we want to we want to treat it for what it really is as God's word i'll begin reading in verse 5 john 16 verse 5 but now i'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me where are you going but because i have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart but i tell you the truth that it is It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to me or to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank You for this Word. I pray that as it goes out, that it would be an encouragement to our hearts. But Lord, may it be a challenge to us as well to, to obedience. Lord, we thank You for Your grace because we need it. We need it. And we need this Holy Spirit as well as He works in our life. The oh, Lord, I pray for clarity, for understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say 90% of us are just button pushers. We really don't care how something works. We just like to push the button and, and make it work. As long as the light switch comes on, we're fine. We don't care to know how the thing works. I remember though, that they say about 10% of the people, they've got to know how it works. They've got to just take it apart and see, oh, yeah, it makes sense. And you, you've got to see how it works. I remember when we first got a microwave. Now, I know you, you kids today, you think microwaves, they, they've been around for 100 years or 200 years. But no, they're pretty new. But I remember your, our first microwave. I, okay, you're, some of them smile. How many remember your first microwave? Okay, see there, I'm not alone yeah I remember we brought this in it was huge. It was much bigger than the ones we have today and and you know we take it out of the box we put it on the counter and we look at it and, and we look inside and say, how does this thing going to work there's no where's the heating element you know and and you just think it's not going to work and you say, all right well, get something we got to try it out and you put some water in there and you you put it for a minute or two minutes or whatever and you look in there and nothing's really happening and see it's busted this thing doesn't work it's a hoax anyway and and you and then you open it up and, ouch, it's hot. How did that happen? Man, and I just wanted to take a screwdriver and look in the back and, and find out how that thing worked. I didn't. I didn't. My mom would have killed me. And I, to this day, I really, I mean, they, I know people have tried to explain it to me. I still don't know how they work. I really don't. I'm just a button pusher when it comes to microwaves. But I remember Computers. When I got my first computer. Now we were used this is a generation we were used to to typewriters. I took a typing class in high school, and so I could type, and typing is a very manual thing. I mean, you push a button and the arm goes up and it attaches or it, it makes a mark on the paper, and, and you can see. you push J, you get J. Now you get J, and you can't go back and erase J unless you have this special ink, and you, you have to, you know go through all of that. So we've got computers and we we type it out and and we look at it and we think, no, it's not what I want. And we just erase it. That's a foreign concept. And I remember thinking, oh, man, what do I do now? And, oh, you push this key and you back it up and it it erases what you... and you can start over. But again, I, I still haven't figured computers out. I guess I'm just a button pusher there. But cars. Some of you, some of you are still just turning the key... Don't show me what's under the hood. I don't care how this thing works. I'm just going to turn the key, and if it starts, and I'm happy. If it doesn't start, I, somebody else can fix it. But don't tell me how to... Now, I do know a little bit about cars. Not, not very much, but I know a little bit. And um, this passage, Jesus is kind of opening the hood for us. And he's saying, Look under the car, look under the hood, because you'll see the power here. Now, that's what most of us will see this and will say, Oh, I don't care how it works. Now, this is concerning evangelism and concerning witnessing. Most of us will look at this and say, I don't care how this works. I just want to push a button, I just want to say the words. But Jesus thought it was important for us to understand some things. Here's how it's going to work in the hearts of unbelievers. So we can't just be button pushers when it comes to evangelizing. We need to know a little bit about what's going on. And Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. And this Holy Spirit comes. And particularly in this area of evangelism. Now man's major problem... Man's major problem is sin, right? We understand that. We know that. But there's a problem with that. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. Solomon, he, he discovered this principle. And he just uh, he let us know this. So, uh, Proverbs chapter 20 in verse 12 says this. There is a kind, it really could be translated generation, who is pure in his own eyes. There's a a kind of person, that would really be all of us. It's pure in his own eyes. We think we've got it right. And and we're doing the right thing. Yet, the second part of that verse, yet is not washed from his filthiness. Now here's the problem with man. Man is sinful. Now that's the main problem. But to uh, enhance that problem is we don't know how filthy we are. We think we're pure. We think we've got it right. But that that only complicates the problem, and so Jesus has to send the Holy Spirit to work in a person's heart to even expose them to their sinfulness. Well, can't we just tell them? Yes, yes, we can. Here's the way John MacArthur put it. I like this uh, little quote. He said, "The world hates hated Jesus or hates Jesus because sinfulness hates righteousness, imperfection hates perfection." The the, uh, domain of darkness hates the kingdom of His beloved Son. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to, number one, penetrate hearts steeped in sin. Number two, overcome sinners' resistance to the Gospel. That's the Holy Spirit. Penetrate hearts, overcome resistance to the Gospel. And number three is to bring them through Saving faith in Jesus Christ to fellowship with God. And he goes on to say, uh, To do this, the Spirit must break the power of sin, or power that enslaves us, and break our love for iniquity. Do you get that? It's break that power of sin in our lives, but also that love for sin. I think we still have that sometimes sometimes. And I think MacArthur has it right. Now Jesus has introduced to us uh, a conversation here. Back in 26, in chapter 15 and verse 26, he introduced to us this conversation of the Holy Spirit. And this, the context is that he is working with his disciples. He is talking and training his disciples before he goes away, and he wants them to know certain things about the how the ministry is going to function. How is it going to work? And last week we saw that the Holy Spirit, actually we saw, uh, there's, there's three elements here. The first section, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and He's gonna work on the hearts of the, the disciples and prepare them for the work of the ministry. And that's what we saw last week, that the Holy Spirit's gonna come down and His mission is going to present Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ, and He's going to use witnesses. He's going to use those who have believed and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And they're going to open their mouth and speak the gospel. And he is going to go with that gospel. It's important that we understand that. Turn over to uh, Romans chapter 10. Now we just read this passage for you. I just want to focus on verse 14. Romans chapter 10 verse 14. He says, How can they call upon whom they have not believed? Men, mankind needs to call upon the name of the Lord. They need to call upon Christ. How can they call on whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And I think that's all we see. We just see the physical elements. And and so here's what we see. We see what's real easy. Um, You The witness, we just speak out the message and the message goes through the air, comes into the ears of those who are hearing and goes into their mind. And there has to be a certain amount of understanding there. And that's all that needs to take place. But I think we know better than that. The Holy Spirit, the helper has to come along and illuminate that heart. And inform that heart so there's a a real understanding of those things. Now, just turn a few pages over. Actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll show you how important this is. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And you'll see where I'm going in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaks by the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed. And the Holy Spirit is not in you to, to go around blaspheming God. That's just not characteristic of someone who has the Holy Spirit. And, he said, just the opposite is true. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the what? By the Holy Spirit. Listen, we cannot genuinely, from our hearts, say, Jesus is Lord, except the Holy Spirit be living within us and be, uh, be uh, working in our hearts. He's the one that produces that in our minds, in our hearts, and our lives. So we, we speak out the message and it goes into the ear, but once it gets to the unbeliever and it, once it begins to, to uh, uh, penetrate their understanding, the Holy Spirit begins to work on that heart and that mind and produce... Spiritual results. Spiritual results. Now, before he gets to this principle though, Jesus has to point out one thing to him. And notice with me in verse 5. Verse 5. He says this. But now I am... Going to Him who sent me. That's God. He's going back to heaven. He's going back to His Father. And none of you have asked me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. You're so focused still upon your sorrow. On the bad thing that I've just told you. I've just told you that I'm going. And you're still focused upon that. And you're not at all concerned about you're about loving me. Now he had to chide them one time earlier, if you look back. And it was on the same night that he does this. Um chapter 14, verse 28, he says this. He said, You heard that I said, I go away. And that's that's about all they seem to have understood. That he's going away and sorrow has filled their heart because of that. And he is and they're just they're just they don't like what he is saying. He says, I go away. He says if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Here's what's happening. This is a lack of love on the disciples' part. They they're really not focused upon Jesus at all. And his time of knee and his time of of uh, this persecution is going to come upon him. And then it's going to be great rejoicing because he goes to his Father in heaven. And they're oblivious to this. They're just so focused upon themselves. Focused upon their own needs. Focused upon their, their sorrow. Oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Jesus says, and He just chides them. It's a little it's a little provocation. He's just poking their ribs a little bit. Saying, look, you, you're, your focus is all wrong. You still are not looking at me. And it's the principle of love. It's the principle of love. They can't not get their eyes off themselves. Now there was a, another element. And you could turn over to Matthew chapter 26, because this is also part of the conversation. And Matthew lets us know this. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30. Now, I know I'm jumping around here, but we, we want to lay this foundation out for you so you can get a, an understanding of what's going on here. <clears throat> in verse 30, now this is after the Lord's Supper in verse uh, 30 he says after singing a hymn they went out to the mount of olives so they had 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 the lord's supper he had to chide them because they would not wash each other's feet if you remember that uh, they have the lord's supper he has some conversation with them they sing a song and they leave out they go out to the mount of olives and jesus is probably discussing all of these things as they're in transport as they're as they're going to the mount of olives now here's the conversation. Though here's some of the things, that, uh, some other things that are going on. Jesus said to them, uh, "You will fall away," and he's he's explaining to them that he's, he's you're going to be persecuted and you're going to fall away. Verse thirty three. Look at what Peter says. But Peter said to him, "Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away." So Jesus, Peter stands up and he's. He's speaking, yeah, boy, these other guys, man, they may abandon you, God, but boy, not me. The same night, same conversation. And Jesus, Jesus says to him in verse 34, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, Peter. <laughs> and, and Peter says, even if even if I have to die for you, in verse 35, he says, I will not deny you. <laughs> How weak. They thought they were strong. They thought, boy, I love Christ so much, I'm willing to die for you. And he said, You don't love me. You don't love me as much as you think you love me. And he says to me, If you loved me, you would be concerned where I'm going. You haven't even asked where you're going. You haven't showed any concern for me about me going to my heavenly Father and the rejoicing that's going to take place when I get there. You haven't entered into my joy at all. You're still hung up on yourself. Boy, that's a conviction, isn't it? That's a subtle little thing. Now what I think is interesting that John even includes this. It's just one or two little verses right in the midst of this little conversation that he's having. And we can just look at the theology and, and just pick out the theology and forget this verse. But these are clearly here. And John is saying, we blew it. And I think John, if if the Apostle John is writing this, I think if he could go back to that night, he would, he would just focus his attention upon Christ. Why did we not look at Him? Why did we not... He told us. Now the thing is, he says... Uh, he says, "You haven't even asked me where I'm going." Now Thomas did technically ask Jesus, "Where are you going?" If you look over at chapter fourteen, verse five, Thomas says, uh, "Thomas says, Lord, uh, we do not know where you are going. How do you? Uh, how do we know the way?" So technically, in a very technical sense, uh, Thomas did ask, and then actually Peter asked as well. But their concern. Was not where are you going so that we can rejoice with you? their concern was their own it, it was a It was a question out of protest wasn 't it they weren 't concerned about him they weren 't focused on man that 's going to be great. what are you going to do when you get there what 's it going to be like? Tell us about the father. those kinds of things. No it was in protest we don 't want you to go again. their focus is upon themselves listen that 's just a subtle little it's a subtle little hint uh, that Jesus is convicting them. It's a little jab. Now he's getting ready to say the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to do that. That very thing. And So you see the love of Christ contrasts with the, the love of the, the, um, the disciples. And Jesus said, now the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes now, he's going to convict you. <laughs> You can convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. These men needed to get their focus off of themselves. And so Jesus had to chide them. And I'm just reminded, folks, we, we don't love like we should love. We love what surfacely. We don't get involved in, in each other's lives. And we're not concerned about one another. We get so wrapped up in our own daily life and the struggles of daily life. And we just focus upon our own needs. Isn't that the way we are? The disciples are typical. They're just typical. Now here's what I want you to see. The next three verses here are, are, are the meat. Now John gives us this. But here's the meat. Here's what I want you to see. Here's the point. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the unbeliever to produce supernatural results. So Jesus is—he tells he told the disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to come down. He's going to use you and you're going to be my witnesses. He's going to be a witness. As the witness goes out, He's going to work in the hearts. And the second phase of the Holy Spirit's ministry is the results. Supernatural results. He's going to work in the hearts of people. And He's going to convict them of sin. He's going to convict them of sin. Now the third uh, element, the third phase of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that He's going to come and He's going to reveal the Word of God to them. He's going to make that clear to them. But let's look at these next three verses. From chapter 7, actually next four. 7 down to verse 11. And here's the question. Here's the question we'll answer. Here's the question that Jesus answers for us. What does the Holy Spirit do in the life of the unbeliever to produce change? How do we change a heart? We can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can do it. And here's what He's going to do. He's opening the hood of the car, and He's saying, here's the way it's going to look. Here's the power. If you're going to buy a car, if you're going to buy a car, you, you open the hood. You may not even understand what all is going on in there, but you make sure it has an engine. There has to be some power. And Jesus is showing, here's the real power of ministry. Here's the real power. And he gives us a clear picture here of what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing through the Gospel. And there's, uh, and there's three areas in which the Holy Spirit is going to work in the hearts of the unsaved. The unbeliever. Three areas. Look at verse 7. But I tell you the truth, that it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is wanting to encourage them. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8. And he said, when, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to convict the world. So number one. Number one. There's three elements. He's going to work in the lives of the unbeliever. He works in the hearts of the believers first. He prepares them for witness. And then He works in the hearts of the unbeliever as well. And prepares the gospel by convicting them of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Number one, let's look at this. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning their sinfulness. Concerning their sinfulness. Verse 9. Concerning sin because they do not believe me. They do not believe in Me. We really don't see how bad we are. We really don't. We, we, even in, when we are told, when we kind of get a glimpse of it, it's not really a full picture. And I know I've used this illustration before, but it's like fish in water. They don't know they're wet. We are in a sinful environment. We're sinners. We don't know how sinful we are. And some people say, well, that sinfulness uh, man is not really born with that. Man is actually born good, and all you need to do is fan that flame and and they 'll become good kids and good adults and Some will say no, no people are born neutral, and they 've got to choose and if the, they 've got good parents and the parents will choose, help them to choose in the right direction or choose in the wrong direction, the bad direction they 're neutral. And the Scripture just cuts right through that and says, no, you are bad. There's nothing good in us. You are bad. We, are, we, we need a total change, a total transformation. In fact, we need to be persuaded that we're bad. We don't even believe that we're bad. So we need the Helper to come along and convict us. Wow. Wow. Wow, convict us. We need to be convicted that we are as sinful as we really are. Show us the truth. Now, there's two ways to take this word convict. It it could be that it's a pronouncement of judgment, of of conviction. Um, It would be like you were standing before, in a criminal trial, standing before a judge, and the judge looks at all the evidence and says, Yes, you are guilty. You are convicted. You're convicted. Now someday, someday God will God will put the hammer down and say, Yes, you are guilty, you are convicted of of these things and you are found guilty. It's as though, and this if you interpret this way, it'd be the Holy Spirit is the, the prosecuting attorney who presents God's case against humanity. And he says, You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, and he's convicting us. But there's another element, and I think in the context here, this definition of conviction is better. Conviction here means being convinced that you're really a sinner and in need of a Savior. That's what it means here. Being convinced that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Uh, Merle Tenney, uh, a commentary that I read, he he said this, and I, I like this, he put it so well. When the Holy Spirit convicts, he brings us inescapable, he brings an inescapable sense of guilt so that they realize their shame and helplessness before God. That's conviction. That's a realization. I am a sinner. I am a sinful person. And the Holy Spirit can do that. He goes on to say this He creates an inescapable awareness of sin so that it cannot be easily dismissed without any with an excuse uh, or um, by or uh, evaded by uh, taking refuge in the fact that everyone else is doing it when the Holy Spirit convicts you you know that you are sinful and you can't just easily just pass it off well everybody else is doing it it doesn't seem to help when the Holy Spirit is working now I want you to see an example of this this is a good example first Corinthians chapter 14. And in this passage, in the context here, Paul is talking about the gifts, the gifts of the, the, the Holy Spirit and in the church and what the church is to, to do and to be like. And he's having to correct some of the, the heresy in the, uh, in the church at Corinth. And there's a lot of chaos in their church service. And here's what he says in verse, uh, verse 24. He says, "But if all prophesy, and all are, and an unbeliever or a sinful or an ungifted man enters, and let me let me go back and give you a little bit more context here. Uh, let's let's start at verse 22, 22. So then, tongues are a sign, not to believers but to unbelievers. That's outside the church. When you're inside the church, he says, prophecy is a sign for." Uh, not for unbelievers, but for believers. So we prophesy inside the church. But even at that, he said it has to. You have to. Uh, it has to be in an orderly way. And so in verse twenty three, he says, "Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and, and the gifted and uh unbeliever enters, and here's what's going to happen. In verse twenty four, he says, "This if an unbeliever enters, he says." And everything is as it should. And there's two elements that he's bringing to this. And that's clarity of the gospel and purity of life. He's bringing those two things together. And when an unbeliever comes in, even in the church service, he is what? He is convicted by all. All the things that happen. All the things that happen comes in and he sees uh, what's going on. Wow, they're taking this stuff seriously. And he says, and he's called into account by all. And here's what happens, verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. Now that's just to himself. It's not like it's a, it's a public uh, uh, confession of sin. It's just that he's realizing within himself, the Holy Spirit's convicting within himself, I'm a filthy person. And I'm in a, a clean place. He says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall to His face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among them. Wow! That's conviction. That's what conviction can do. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. He can bring people to their knees, the realization that they're filthy. And they see the righteousness in in the church, and they see this, and they, they say, I'm not like this. And they're convicted. And that's a good... It's a good picture. They must realize their filthiness. It's not just a, a little dirt. It's filthiness. And the Holy Spirit has to bring those things to bear to our life. Jesus says it is to your advantage. This is the advantage of the witness to, uh, for me to go to send the Holy Spirit because they do not believe in me. You know what? We sin all kinds of sins. But the sin that will send us to hell is the sin of unbelief. I think the world has it wrong. The world thinks it's it's the amount of sin that we have. Well, I don't have that much sin. Just the other day, a couple weeks. Well, I guess this is a, a trial that's been ongoing, and it's just the filth that's being uh, that's coming out of this trial, and uh, it's a, a child pornography uh, trial, and this man is uh, is being accused of this, and they found all of these. It just mounts and mounts of, of child pornography on his, on his computer. And we look at that and say, man, I don't have that much sin. He deserves hell. That's the way the world sees it. Or the world sees it as, um, as a, uh, a, a one really serious sin. It's not just the amount of sin, but it's, it's really bad sin. Then you deserve to go to hell. No, we go to hell because of unbelief. The one sin of unbelief. And the, all the other sins, those hold us in our unbelief. They cloud our judgment. They blind us to the reality of, of Christ. And so we don't believe. And all those other sins, they just hold us in that unbelief. And unbelief is why we go to hell. It's sobering. It's sobering. Uh, let me show you one more example. Second Samuel. need to see conviction. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 7. And you know the story. David had had an affair. And he had had the, 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 uh, the husband of this woman killed in battle. I mean, he was living in this sinful, wretched life. And God sends a prophet. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 7. Nathan then goes to David and he, he really it's just really a short conversation. In verse 7, Nathan just looks at David and he and he says, David, you are the man. Now he 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 uh gives him a little story, but he says, David, you are the man. And he gives the message from God, and, and David is convicted. And in verse 13, we see David's response, a very short, simple response, not what we would expect from David, but then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's enough said. It's enough said. Yes, I'm guilty. I've sinned against the Lord. And what's going on in in David's heart? We see that in a couple of passages in Psalms. Psalm 32, he gives us a glimpse of what's going on in his heart. And And it just shows us the heart that's been convicted. Psalm 32. He says this in verse one: How blessed are those whose transgression or sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In verse three, he says, "When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Though my, through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy be upon me, heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away." As with the fever of heat of summer, and I acknowledged my sin to you, and then you forgave me. Look at chapter 51, Psalm 51. Precious Psalms. These are Psalms that we need to be aware of, we need to know because they express conviction so well. Be gracious to me, Psalm fifty-one. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your love and kindness, according to the graces or the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's conviction. And he runs to God and he confesses that sin when the Holy Spirit works in a heart. That's what happens. That's what happens. The Spirit convicts the, the, the person of unbelief. That's what His role is. When we present the Gospel, the message, the Holy Spirit is working. And so it's to our advantage. It's an advantage of the witness to have this Holy Spirit I've found that it's hard to talk about sin in today's culture. It's hard to talk about somebody else's sin. It's hard to bring up sin, somebody else's sin, because of this hypersensitivity. You don't offend me, man, I, I'll let you have it. You don't offend me. This politically correct world. And so Satan loves it. He loves it that sinners don't talk about sin he doesn't want us to talk about sin. He wants us to, to keep it quiet. The Holy Spirit and all the while is working on hearts to, to point out their sinfulness. And I, I believe that, that we need to talk about sin more. Our own sin. And I think we need to talk about sin to unbelievers. That's hard to do. It's hard to do, like I said, in this culture. But sometimes we just let them off the hook. and Well, it's just the way humans are. We're just sinful. Or... Or they they just say, well, everybody else is doing it. I'm not so bad. I had a young man come to me one time, and, and he just, I need to get saved. I need to get saved. And I said, uh, and he just wanted to pray right then. I, I just want to get saved. But I, I wasn't even sure if he understood what what saved meant. And I said, well, why do you need to get saved? And he he took back. I took a step back. Well, I don't know. You have to get him lost. You have to, they have to understand their sinfulness. The Holy Spirit has to work in the heart. Convince them that they're a sinner before they need a Savior. And so we, we as when we're witnessing, when we're talking to people, it's, it's pre-discipleship, or it's pre-evangelism discipleship. We're teaching them, you're sinful. You're sinful. And the Holy Spirit then comes along and He convicts. Back to John, John chapter 16. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. In a witnessing situation, we depend upon the Holy Spirit. We'll move to these next two very quickly. The Holy Spirit brings conviction or convicts the world concerning the standard of righteousness. In verse 10, He goes on to say, and concerning righteousness. So the Holy Spirit is convicting people of their sinfulness and He's convicting the people of concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. Now, there's a certain amount of righteousness in the world. And we look around and say, people are not as bad as they could be. And so there's a standard of righteousness that we have. But Paul said, and God says, that standard of righteousness, that's filthy rags. That's worthless. That's not even doesn't even measure up. That's not a standard. You say, well, we have a conscience. Yeah, we have a conscience. But that conscience is Adjustable. And parents adjust that conscience, and I I think that's a good thing. God has given that responsibility to parents, but it's adjustable, and it can be seared. You can you can just tell your conscience no so often that your conscience is no longer affecting you; it's not bothering you. What's the standard? Christ Jesus is the standard. He says righteousness because I go to my Father. He is the standard of righteousness. And he goes into the Father because He can He has direct access to the Father. He has a, a perfect connection with the Father, and He and He is perfect, so He can go into the presence of His Father. Um, John MacArthur says it like this <clears throat> when there is wickedness, <clears throat> when there is wickedness, uh is um, is compared, or when their wickedness is compared to Christ's sinful holiness, their sin is seen more truly for detestable evil than it is. And the sinner is face to face with the impossibility of salvation by his own efforts, his own works, and his own achievements. I think that's correct. I think that's true. Tenney says about this, this Commentary. There is a an infinite gap between the righteousness of God and sinful state of man that cannot be bridged. Whereas righteousness had previously been defined in precepts in the Word of God, we, we understood righteousness through the Word of God, it is now revealed through the incarnate Son of God. Jesus Christ is that example. He is He is the one that that we are following. He is the one that can go right into the presence of the Father because He is pure. And, and the, the next day for Him, this crucifixion, and he, all of that will be perfected. All of that will be complete. And He can go right into the presence of His Father. And so the example is perfect. It's perfect. It's a perfect example. So the Holy Spirit, He convicts them of sin, but He also comes along and He shatters, he shatters their self-righteous standard. And He says, no, God is the standard. Christ Jesus is the standard. Everything else is just hypocrisy. And He exposes the darkness of their sin. And sometimes that's that's what I say. We, We need a helper. We cannot understand how dark things are. And the Holy Spirit is throwing up the example of Christ and the perfection of Christ. And Jesus Himself is pointing to the disciples. They didn't even attain it. They're not loving like they should love. Now how do we apply this? <clears throat> Sometimes I, I think the church I think the church doesn't have a high enough standard. We are to be living out the righteousness of Christ in our life, and we're to be living that out in front of a watching world. And I believe the world's not convicted at all because our standards are so low. And it's not by dress. It's not combing the hair and no beard and all this kind of stuff that we see today. Traditional thinking, it's the way we talk, because that exposes the hearts. The way we, we treat one another, it's the way we uh, it's our morals. It's our love for one another, love for other people. And people see that and they say, yes, that's a different, that's different, that's a change, that's a different kind of thinking, that's a different heart. That's a standard that only comes from Christ. And you won't follow that standard unless you're, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Unless you are following Jesus Christ as a disciple would follow his teacher. He is our standard. Jesus Christ is our standard. And we need to hold that standard up to a world because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's holding that standard of Christ up. I've been in places, I remember when I was at the Capitol in Pennsylvania, people would be convicted when they would see me coming down the hall. And it would be a long haul and they would see me coming and and it was in the paper, so I knew their sin. (laughs) And they would be coming down the hall and they knew who I was. They knew I was a chaplain and all this stuff. And Man, they would duck into a place so they wouldn't have to speak to me. And I think just my presence... My presence there was convicting to some people. Convicting. Because the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, He's convicting the world of sin. And He's holding up a standard of righteousness. And the church is part of that standard because we, we live out Christ's righteousness. And we need to do that. We need to do that. Let me give you the last one. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning their faulty judgments. Their faulty judgments. In verse uh, verse eleven he says, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, and the the ideas, Satan is the one who is leading us about, and he's already been judged. He's been thrown out of heaven. He no longer works for God, he's been thrown out. He's been judged. And therefore, everybody who is following him, they're they're gonna suffer the same judgment. Their judgment is sealed as well. Apart from repentance in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> condemnation is self evident when the, when the, the judge and the, the leader has been judged, then all of those who are following him will be judged as well. but there's another way to take this as well: the world 's judgment is erroneous. it is evil. They, Because of their sin and because of their blindness to their sin, because their standards are so low, their, their judgments are low. They they don't know how to judge correctly. They, they can't see Christ the way they should see Christ. Their sin blinds them. Satan's lies keep them in check. And faulty, their judgments are faulty. And let me show you this, and going we'll to just point out some passages concerning the, the thinking and the mindset of the unbeliever. Romans chapter 1, we see, and just I'll move through these quickly, you don't have to turn there. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He also says that they know God, in their heart of hearts, they know that the reality of God, but they dishonor Him. They do not honor Him, nor do they give thanks. And the conclusion is that God gives them over to a reprobate mind. A mind who cannot tell up from down, right from wrong, morally bankrupt. Morally bankrupt. In Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse four, we see that they, they live in a world of speculation. So when we go out, we, we need to expect that. They live in this world of speculation. There's one passage that I want you to turn to, and that's Ephesians chapter four, because he just says it so well. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter four and verse seventeen. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Listen to that command. Don't walk as they walk. And here's how they walk. In the futility of their mind. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Their minds are futile. They don't have the right judgment. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance of that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they uh, they have become calloused. Uh, having given themselves over to sensuality and practice of every impurity and greediness. That, that's it. That's the mindset of the unbeliever. That's why... And we were the same way, he says. We were just the same way. That's why we have to have the Holy Spirit... What I can't understand is a whole system of theology, Armenian theology, Armenian thinking that says, no, man has a free will and man can just choose to do right. God says, no, you need a helper. You need the Holy Spirit to come down and convict them because they do not have right judgment. They don't have it. They don't understand it. And here's how bad it is. We see it in the the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 5. It gives us a pretty good picture. This is this is where it goes. Isaiah chapter five, verse twenty says, Woe to those who call good or evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Boy, that is our generation. Amen. That is our generation. I just uh I just watched. No, I haven't watched it. I I thought about watching it, but I don't want to watch it. I did read some reviews concerning this movie Noah, and I tell you, it is so typical how Satan twists Scripture. And um, I wouldn't even mention this because it's kind of typical of Hollywood. You wouldn't. What do you expect from Hollywood? They don't understand spiritual things. But I heard a commercial for this. And it was on the radio. And I thought, well, this is interesting. At the end of that commercial, it says creative license has, has taken place. But they go on to say, this is the way we see Scripture. And I'm summarizing that. But They said that. This is the way we interpret the Bible concerning that passage. It would be Genesis chapter 6 talking about Noah. And that just shook me. They actually read that and came out with... That movie, it doesn't even match. But you know what? They have a wrong judgment. They can't see that. Up is down and down is up to them. Sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet to them. They twist scripture. Here's the deal it's the same command that Paul gave in Ephesians. Don't be like them, don't be the way we used to be. Don't follow their judgment. Don't trust their judgment. We have a standard here of truth that we check everything else by. It's the standard of Scripture. Our judgments are going to be different judgments because we serve a true and living God. They're not going to have the right judgments. And and so the Holy Spirit has to come and say, no, your judgments are wrong concerning that. And He convicts them. He convicts them of that. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts of the unbeliever and he's producing supernatural results. I couldn't get these results. You can't get these results. Just being the witness that we're called to be, you can't get these results apart from the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural work in somebody's heart that they even understand their sin. That they even come to realization that Jesus Christ is Lord. It takes a special work of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. I think we treat salvation as just something commonplace. It's just man's will. Boy, God has to work. And Jesus opens up the the hood of the car and says, Look at the engine there. Look at the powerhouse. And He says, Go get them. Don't be afraid. Don't be hung up on that. Let's talk about other things. But He's encouraging them. He's encouraging them. And He tells them, Here's how it's going to work. And you you listen to it and you think, Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can make an impact in the world. Maybe we can turn Daniel's upside down for Christ or Beckley upside down for Christ. The advantage is on our side. I like the wording that, Paul, that uh, John uses here. We are on His side. All we do is open our mouth. All we have to do is bring up Christ. All we have to do is talk. He'll work. He'll convict We just have to be willing participants. And I I beg of you too, if you're here and you're not saved, I pray that you examine your own self. The answer is confession to God. Repentance for the way you've treated Christ, the way you've rejected Christ in the past. And for us believers, we need to make sure that we're not following the world's judgment, the world's thinking on things. We, We can't do that we as christians have to cut across the grain of culture and say no this is the way to think let's pray father you are you are so clear in your word we're so thankful that we don't have to do this witnessing thing alone lord because our words will just fall short. Our words will just be empty words without the power of the Holy Spirit. Our words would have no effect. We can't persuade anybody of anything. Lord, we we pray. We pray that we would see the power of the message of the gospel as it goes out, accompanied by the Holy Spirit. And we see that in the life of The people here in Daniels, West Virginia. And and Beckley, West Virginia. Lord, use us. Help us to be the witnesses that You've called us to be. Help us to not be fearful as though we don't have any power. Oh Lord, work in our hearts as well. Even convict us, Lord, where we're short. See if there be any wicked way in us, Lord. Give us this ability. To make an impact in our world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.